0: Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive.
1: All right, good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. I want to ask you a question. Have you considered a 1090 policy design for an IBC policy over a design that's truer to Nelson Nash's original 3366 split and maybe this is because someone showed you that you can get more cash value early on in year 1 or maybe because you have an earlier break even point or maybe you see that somehow you still could have more cash value even by year 30 now a, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, we're going to bring you up to speed, so don't worry about that. And B, if you are asking this question, we would love to know. So you can share your thoughts and questions in the comments section if you're watching on Facebook or on YouTube. Now, I'm Rachel Marshall with the Money Advantage Podcast. My co-host Bruce Weiner is with us this morning. Good morning and welcome, Bruce.
0: Morning, Rachel. I think just like the last podcast we did on velocity banking, It seems to be the very pot, uh, there's a a, uh, a faction of people that are very passionate about this and they don't want to really even look at all the sides. Unfortunately, it's kind of like our political uh, environment uh, right now. And what our attempt to do today is actually talk about the implications, not right or wrong, but the implications. And that's all we're trying to make sure that our listeners understand today is that I, I, and I'm really excited to have Rodney on because he's a he's a master on a, a lot of things. He you're going to see his credentials here in in a in a second. But the fact of the matter is is that insurance products are actuarial products, and that means they're basically they're based on numbers, mortalities. Um, they're based upon what we always say: your your gender, your health, and your habits. Uh, we we talk about that all the time, and. When you do that, there's no there's no magic in these numbers. You're, whenever you get something on one side, you're giving up something on the other side. And so I think we'd like to focus on during this this uh, podcast is what you're getting and what you're giving up. And that's simply what we're going to talk about. And then we're going to also let Rodney take his vast amount of knowledge and maybe talk about a few other things, um, at least tease it for maybe some future podcasts, which we'd love to have him on. So, um, uh, Rachel, that's, I think, uh, our our um, readers really need, our listeners really need to uh, understand that we're just trying to lay out both ends of the spectrum.
1: Yes, and Bruce, I really appreciate that you share that. I think that most everybody who listens to this show realizes that we are here for the educational content, and we really want to empower you to make decisions. So, Without further ado, I want to bring Rodney into the show. Rodney Mogan, thank you for being with us on the show today.
2: Thanks, Rachel and Bruce. I appreciate the opportunity.
1: Awesome. Well, I want to give you a little bit of a preview of what Rodney is all about and what he has done and why we've brought him on the show to discuss these important issues today. And Rodney, you have done a lot in your history and background with the financial services and insurance industry. And I think it's really important for our guests to understand where your background is and where you're coming from and what you have accomplished and what you've seen. So I'm just going to give a little bit of the highlights here. So Rodney, you are really... Um, you've been a 20-year-plus veteran in the financial industry. He graduated from McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, which I am from Minnesota, and I actually know that college name, so that's excellent.
2: You're one of the few. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's awesome. That's awesome. So that was in 1999. He had a double major in economics and finance and minors in psychology, history, and art. You can already see this guy has uh, some accomplishments and achievements. That's a double major and three minors. So he started off as a financial planner with Ameriprise uh, Financial um, IDS. He grew a 500 annual planning practice. He went into management. He ran their financial planning unit, insurance call centers while building and growing a 100 agency advisor or advisor agency. So you can see this guy has built not only a financial practice but teams and he has done a lot of work in helping other advisors to successfully help their clients. And then he moved over to wholesaling. He built a large presence as a top wholesaler and I'm going to also mention here that he has been re- recognized nationally for his speed of producing life and disability insurance cases. So he's also averaged over 70 cases a week with his advisors and maintained an industry high average of 13 business days submission to issue. So the reason I share that is that not only is he great at what he does, he has done a tremendous volume of life insurance and disability policies and cases, which means you have seen a lot in your history. So that's really what I wanted to bring up now. You have been recognized. You've had awards in... I think every year that I see, 2002 through 2006 um, on to 2008, you've done a lot of work with long-term care. Um, you have a doctorate in business administration as well. And um, I I will let you share the rest. I know you also are an advisor consultant and a small business, business specialist with Mogan Consulting Financial and Training, LLC. And you help advisors to build fiduciary practices. So what we're looking at is a gentleman who not only understands small business, he understands the financial services arena, he understands insurance extremely well, and you are going to get all of that history and experience coming into the conversation today. So uh, I would like, Rodney, if you can share just a little bit of your background, anything that I maybe have glossed over or failed to mention, just in terms of what has brought you into the position here that you are standing today working with Mass Mutual.
2: Yep. So uh, the one thing that I realized I did not include in there is I also now have a doctorate in financial planning as well. Oh, nice. Uh, so I, you know, I really have um, believed to be a student of the game, and you know, what my role is is helping advisors uh, like Bruce and other everyone else across the country really helping wh- what I like to call solve their puzzles. I'm a puzzle solver, and so I really want to be able to take a look at what. Um, The clients are really trying to accomplish what their goals and concerns are and then find the right solutions that actually help uh, mitigate any risk, but also help, uh, you know, help them achieve the goals that they want in a way they want to do it. And then also help the advisor figure out the best way to do it. And with a lot of the different rules that are going on, some of your listeners might know about the DOL, Department of Labor rule that went under the Obama administration and then was removed in the Trump administration. And then now at the end of this month, something called Reg BI, best interest the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, is putting into place. There's a lot of different confusing language out there of what is this and who advisor is this and so on and so forth. So my job is to really help advisors make sure that they're making the right decisions for their clients. They're following all the rules, but also, you know, really making sure that they're educating their clients at the same time.
1: I really like that you share that perspective and Bruce I'll let you jump in here as well. Um, go ahead.
2: So Ronnie,
0: explain your role, uh, with mass mutual and what do you do?
2: So, but my job is, you know, mass mutual is a, is a great, large, uh, 160 plus year, uh, mutual company. Uh, they've got two different platforms of how they distribute their products. Uh, the first one is what's called the career, uh, career system. Those are advisors that they bring on, that they train, that they help pay for, they finance, things like that. And really, real short, that is really the major way of how we're actually growing our industry right now. Um, The other way is where I work, and that is the brokerage side. So my job is to actually bring the products that Mass Mutual has out to people like you, Bruce, who are not associated with any specific firm, you know, like a specific company, like Mass Mutual or Ohio National, or whatever it might be, but we want to br- be able to bring our products out there so that anyone can get an uh, any client can have an opportunity to get access to our products. And it's my job is to educate, train, and then also you know help you do it uh, and use our products the right way. That's,
0: That's great, excellent. Ronnie. And I, I think this is a um, um, a very difficult. Thing for the consumer to understand the difference between a um, a career agent and a and a agent that works as a broker, um, and so can you kind of uh, talk about the difference between those two, and then maybe also talk about compensation between those two.
2: Yeah, so you know you you hear the term career agent or sometimes captive agent, and Different career companies, and there's really four or five what's what I would call career companies anymore now there used to be thirty or forty um, there used to be as much as a hundred, but just economics and how things work there's really four or five, and that really those are the only firms that are out there hiring new people to the industry uh, because they have the systems to train, so we need those those uh those companies and those systems to have new advisors coming in because as you know, Bruce, you know our advisor uh, base is aging. We're we'll not yes. getting younger. Um, and so you know the career companies are the way we, re- we recruit in. However, how a career company works is the career agent is someone that, you know, each company is a little different. Some companies, you can only sell their products. Other companies have a little bit of what's more called open architecture, but almost all those companies still have some type of what's called contract requirement. Uh, to be able to, um, you know, they have to sell X amount of their products as far as premium goes, so on and so forth, a year, to be able to uh, maintain their contract. Uh, It's usually a lower amount, but it's still a a pretty significant amount if you've been there for 5, 10, 15 years. Um, Along with that contract, there's generally benefits added to it, uh, a pension, there's other different things that are in there. So even though their commissions might not necessarily be – as high as some other people on the street, and the street is what I talk about brokers, and I'll talk about that in a second. But uh, they are getting some other types of, uh, you know, compensation as far as office allowances and things like that. But you know, you are even in the career company, you are running a practice. It's just maybe at a little bit more of a reduced cost. You know, like with Mass Mutual, Mass Mutual has a big tech platform. Well, if you've got over ten thousand advisors, your cost for technology might only be sixty dollars a month. Versus you, Bruce, who are what I call a broker, where you really are running a practice and you, uh, and, and so so are career agents, but you're running a practice, but you're also paying the rent. You are, uh, you're not sharing the rent with 20 other people inside of an agency. You are, um, you know, it's on yours. You're paying for your own marketing. You're, you know, if you're paying for e-money or, you know, some type of software out there, you're probably paying the full cost of $5,000, not $60 a month. Um, so those are all the different things that are different between a career side and a broker side, broker sides, the costs are all on, all on us. And I technically am a broker as well. Um, so I am an independent, I'm not a, on salary. I, you know, that, that's why I've really looked at myself as being a consultant. And so you get paid the same commission rate, on the broker side, as you do on the uh, career side, but then there is a little bit of a bonus that is that is added to uh, broker broker business. It's not much; it's anywhere from 10 to 40 percent of the commission, and um, that's something that I get to determine of what I I pay out, and it's based on my relationship with you and how much you you're doing with me and things. So I I do reward people that do more business with me, um, but those are my top brokers. Those are the people that understand the product that bring me in to help educate things like that. Um, Also part of my role is to do a lot of work with clients. And so, you know, I have to get paid too. So I, I pay people out of that bonus, but I pay myself out of that bonus too. So there's always a lot of little negotiations. So, but yeah, you know, and I mentioned that there are about four or five, what I call career companies um, without going through their names, but those are the ones that have offices in all 50 States and they are, Tied to a regulation. Um, I don't know how this ever happened, but New York—if you do business in New York—you have to follow New York regulations. And New York does have some very stringent regulations of different things. One of them is commissions to agents. However, that's just a percentage number. There are other things that they don't restrict, but you know, companies have to constantly look at what they're paying and how they how they do that. You have other companies that can pay a lot more. Uh, as far as a percentage basis because they don't do business in New York and that's, they're not what's called a New York company, but it doesn't mean that the products are bad. It doesn't mean that anything's any different. It just means that there's certain companies that have to follow certain regulations. So
0: that, That's a good ex- explanation because one of the, one of the uh, passionate things with the nine, what I would call 10% base, 90% PUA is that if you're not doing business with, Uh, New York companies, then you're doing business with companies outside of New York and those companies are paying a higher commission. And that's the only reason that those agents are selling you that product because they're getting a higher commission than they would if they were working with companies in the state of New York. And what I, uh, just for full disclosure for this, is that, yes, uh, commissions is one aspect of compensation. But those New York companies also, several of them will give a marketing allowance. They will give, like you said a, a allowance for administrative assistance, they will give allowance for rents. they and one of the big ones that because i've been I've been approached by uh, one of those companies to and one of their big things is look what we can do as far as a pension for you yep and and when you look at that kind of compensation for a lifetime pension, I mean, Rodney, once again, I think this is the first time we can give an example is, um, these are expenses by the company. The, company tr- the companies have to manage those expenses because it's the expenses, mortality cost. Um, they subtract from the revenue profit, and that's how they pay dividends. Correct. So, so they all are doing the same thing. They're managing their expenses. And so they're all. I would say the compensation is is about the same for all the major companies. And the reason, if you know anything about macroeconomics, it has to be, or everybody would only work with those particular companies. It's it's just basic economics. So thanks for bringing bringing that up. So well, for, and
1: I appreciate I appreciate as well that we wanted to have this as part of the conversation because behind the whole idea of policy design. And we are going to cover just a a really quick um, introduction to infinite banking and whole life insurance for somebody who is jumping on this call and saying, I have no idea what you guys are even talking about. This is interesting. IBC, 1090, what does that even mean? But when we talk about policy design, there can be a really big concept in most people's minds that, well, agents sell products that pay them the most money. And it's all in terms of self-interest. And of course, they're going to sell products that pay them more money, and if they get paid more money, then they're going to find a way to market that product to the consumer. And that's why um, they're going to pitch that or or come at a life insurance conversation from a certain angle. And so what we want to do is just kind of remove the curtain or open the curtain and look behind what exactly is happening so that you as a life insurance, owner, a policy owner, a person who is trying to figure out how do I manage my financial life to have the most certainty, the most control, the most guarantees, the most capital that I can use and leverage for opportunities. How do I get in a position of control and how do I see behind what's just in it for somebody else? How do I actually figure out what's in it for me? And so that's really why we want to even talk about compensation.
2: Yes, Rachel, so- if, if I can add something really quick before we move forward. I've, you know, one thing I didn't talk about my background is I've actually had testified at the U.S. House. I've tes- testified at the Senate and different state houses, including New York and Massachusetts, about fiduciary legislation, things like that. And one of those things that it always bothers me is when people say that agents only sell it for the commission. No, just like any profession, we probably have less than 1% of the agents that do that. Most people are doing it what's right for the client. And that, that's really what I try to help is really making sure that we're doing what's right for the client. So uh, absolutely, I know we got time constraints. So I'll move on.
0: Yeah, that, that's great. So let, let me, let me kind of put a framework on, on, upon these 10, 90 and 30, 70 or 40, 60 conversations. So um, if you had pure whole life insurance, you would just put all of the money into what's called the base premium. And that base premium Um, would get you a certain amount of death benefit guaranteed for the rest of your life. And they normally endow, nowadays with most companies, they normally endow at age 121. That's for another podcast. We'll talk about that. So you have a base um, amount and you would just pay that over the contract, whether that is for uh, the contract is 10 pay, a 30 pay or pay uh, for life. Um, And that base premium stays the same. What you can do with the pre, with the uh, uh, the design of these things, though, is you can actually pull the base premium down, so that and when you do that, uh, you actually lower the death benefit, and this is uh, has obviously has a great um, uh, effect on how much money goes to actually paying the cost of insurance because the death benefit is lower. Then per contract, and I will always want to say this, per contract, so these are contractual obligations, you have the opportunity, the contract says on any given year with some contractual restrictions, but only in any given year, you could put more money into the contract and you. it's what's called a PUA, a paid up additions. Now, for marketing purposes, many of the companies use different terms for this. and But uh, the, all, the entire basis is you give them a set amount of money and you've bought a paid up policy. I always think about uh, people, I tell my clients, just think of it as a little mini policy within the contract. So you've given them $10,000. The actuaries say at your age at that time, we can give you $30,000 of permanent paid up insurance for the rest of your life. You don't have to put another dime into it. Well, what that does is it's actually paid up, and so now you can collateralize that amount of money because it's paid up. So the actuaries know there's not going to be any fluctuation in those numbers, so they can actually use that to actually collateralize any kind of loan for it. So uh, the, the, uh, the Nelson Nash Institute, with Nelson, who was a state farm agent, discovered the use of paid-up additions in the early 80s, we've gone over that story before, and he came upon a design of 33.67 at the time. And Nelson's reasoning for this is, first of all, Nelson believed in the death benefit. So he says, I wanna make sure that people are protected. So he said 33%. He said 67% because this gives you a good amount of early cash value. Okay, now there's other things uh, in that design. And also now, because Nelson did this in the early 80s, and now we've come out with new mortality tables. We've come out with new product designs. Now some of those designs have been able to be pulled down to 10% base and 90% uh, PUA's. Now we have to throw another uh, uh, wrench in this whole thing is – the United States Treasury, the IRS says that in order for this to grow um, tax-free, you have to have the death benefit a certain amount. It has to be so high per how much money you put in every year. It's called a modified endowment contract if you do not follow those rules. You'll often hear in explanations is it policy has been mecked. It means it has become a modified endowment contract if you do not have the death benefit so high according to how much money you put into it. Well, what you can do on these contracts, by contract, again, is add a term rider to this. Now, a term rider will actually add cost. If it add cost, it actually will then affect the cash value of the policy. However, people would argue that Well, the additional cost is actually less than the taxes that you would have to pay on the growth. So it's still a good thing. Now, there's a couple of ways to do this uh, contractually. You can add a term rider. It's got a a term, whether it's 7, 10, 12, 15, 30 years. Or you can add what's called a blended term PUA rider. And I'm going to allow Rodney to Uh, continue this conversation, but I'm going to give my attempt for this um, going forward. So let's say we have to have a million dollars of death benefits for the modified endowment contract to not be triggered. Well, in order to do that, we add $500,000 of term insurance, but we also add a PUA to it, a paid up additions, and that adds additional life insurance to it. The next year, when a dividend is declared by this mutual company, you set the dividend to actually purchase more paid-up additions, and then the dividend on the uh, will actually buy more life insurance. Well, what you can do with the blended, then, is every time you buy more life insurance with the term, you don't need as much term insurance. So, let's say it buys $50,000 the next year. So now instead of 500000 you only need $450,000. So what, what does that do? It lowers your cost of the term insurance, so thus your cash value can grow more quickly if the dividends perform. And then you just keep repeating that process, and some contracts you will actually uh, get rid of that term insurance completely after about 35 or 40 years, and some of them are designed to actually get rid of that term insurance over the life of the contract or the endowed, endowment period at 121. So that is my uh, educational take on this. I'd like Rodney to come in and give his educational take on this from a different perspective, because oftentimes people learn uh, from a, a, a better from a different perspective. So Rodney, uh, go ahead, tell me what I said wrong, tell me what I said right, and and go from there.
2: No, Bruce, I think you actually said it, said it, right. I I just have a different take of how I explain it. And so Mm -hmm. hopefully that will help some of your listeners, but you know, the first thing, first thing before I go forward and Bruce, I know you said it and uh, Nelson mentioned it too. When you're talking about a life insurance product, you've got to start with the death benefit because that's the whole point of really what you're talking about is what, what are you trying to protect? What are you trying to mitigate as far as risks? Now, with whole life insurance, you do have an opportunity to also build cash value that has some guarantees also has some non guarantees to it, but it's not tied to per se a market other than interest rates um and so we start off with the base, and this is what I kind of call the plateau you know so think think about um you know i I, I spent a lot of my summers in the mountains, and so think about you know your base camp that's what the base premium insurance is um and that is exactly. Your guaranteed insurance that you're always going to have that on that policy. There are certain thing, things with that. Now, if you just paid all base, your performance inside for the first few, maybe even first 20, 25 years is not the greatest because insurance companies, when they created whole life insurance, it was meant to be around for the whole life. So that base is always going to be there. It's a permanent base structure. But you want to actually start climbing and you want to have some additional adventures and you know advantages to the policy that's where you add in the little hills and peaks and that's where i call the the insurance and different companies have all different types of terms but you know pua or you know a supplemental rider or something like that that allows you to have some term that's blended in and as bruce said each year as you as you pay it and the dividends have it it's actually buying some of the uh some of that term and turning it into permanent. So your permanent insurance or your base is actually improving. So you're, now you're adding a lodge and you're adding a cafeteria over the, over the period of time. Um, but at the same time, you're decreasing the amount of hills and, and peaks you have to climb to get to what you want. Um, and so that's the advantage of it. Uh, now, the disadvantage to it is those peaks and those hills, they're, the cost to you know get to them can go up and down each year depending on what the dividends are being paid at. Um, and right now we're in a very unusual rate environment where we're having a lot of downward pressure on rates. Thus, that's affecting dividends. As Bruce mentioned, you know, in the previous segment, he talked about you got mortality costs, you got expense costs, and you also have the interest rate. Those three components make up what is paid as far as a dividend. And every company's going to be a little bit different about how they you know pay their dividends, things like that. but five years ago, dividends were as high as 7.5, 7.88 percent. Now the highest one is at 6.2. Um, and I expect that to go down at the end of this year as well. Um, so to, again, it's because of interest rate environments. So when you have that, you have a situation where the cost Maybe not in the first two, three, four years of the policy, but maybe 15, 25, 30 years down the road, if you ha- continue to have that downward pressure on dividends, the cost of that additional term rider could get a lot more expensive and could affect the policy. I actually had uh, a broker I worked with who uh, it's actually it was his mother-in-law, 82 years old, um, had a whole life policy she bought 40 years ago. Not from him. just ha- He just happens to service it. And um, all of a sudden, she got what I call a dividend call. So think like in the stock market, a margin call. I call this a dividend call. And it basically said, you need to pay $5,000 if you want to maintain your death benefit. Otherwise, we're going to reduce this death benefit. And it has a potential to MEP because now you don't have that death benefit, uh, what I call Canyon. Um, you can tell I spent a lot of time in the mountains, so it has this, uh, death benefit Canyon that you want to have that gap to, uh, prevent it from being a mech. Well, if all of a sudden you lose that, you can actually have it, you know, collapse on you and now you have a potential mech, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But it really depends on what you're trying to use the policy for. Um, so, so go ahead, let
1: me just clarify, I think, or, I think my role is to hopefully simplify without oversimplifying and yep. to just bring a really big picture perspective. So if we're looking at a whole life insurance policy, we want something that's going to be enforced for a whole life. We right. want something that we know we have a guaranteed premium that we don't have an increase in that cost. So we're not going to be blindsided with this 5,000 extra needed at some point to keep this policy force that we thought was a, guaranteed consistent predictable product right
2: yeah, and so and, and real real ahead. quick on that I just the base amount is always guaranteed it's always going to be enforced that five thousand dollars I'm talking about is to have that additional death benefit stay in force. So I, I just want to make sure I was oh, clear on that.
1: Yes. Okay so perfect. So that would be so the death benefit doesn't drop so it doesn't mech and turn into this modified endowment contract. Correct. And the other option would be, well, don't pay the 5000 this additional cost to keep the death benefit high, which then you're going to have a tax problem that you're going to be facing.
0: Correct. I would say potentially a tax problem. And yeah. Rodney, Rodney said this, and I agree with Rodney 100%. It's not always bad to have a policy mech. And people say, well, wait a minute, I don't understand that. Well, if you're not going to access or you haven't access to cash value, uh, if you have not access to the, you know, uh, above the cost basis, then you're not going to have to pay taxes on it. And then when you die, a mec policy, a modified endowment contract, gets passed to the heirs tax-free anyway. So uh, actually for estate planning purposes, for estate tax, to pay estate tax, many people actually purposely mec policies. So once again, I think this is an educational part of this is we're not saying that you shouldn't mech policies. We're not saying that you shouldn't do a 1090 design. We're just trying to say that we believe that people are being exposed to 1090 designs and saying, "Oh, look how great this works," without knowing the risks associated. And the first well ri- and the first risk, the first risk is the modified endowment contract coming. And the people that are, and the reason I think this is a risk, Rodney, is the people that are setting these up, they're doing it for mostly, uh, from what I can see from my research and people that have actually contacted the Money Advantage, is because they want to have a lot of money available in the early years to do real estate investing. So mm-hmm. they're going to they're gonna actually access the cash value. And use it. And, and use it, and mm-hmm. then hopefully pay it back uh, with the rental incomes. And but it's been my experience since the 80s that uh, people's intentions are not always followed through. And I haven't seen people that uh, majority of people, I would say this is a, a fair to say, do not pay the entire amount back and thus could trigger something in the future. And by the way, I bet that $5,000 figure you was on a fairly low premium um, <laughs> and my point being is some of these people that are doing the real estate investing are putting a $100,000 in there a mm-hmm. year. And if they do that, they have to have a really big death benefit and it'll be a lot more than uh, $5,000 is my point.
1: So, and yeah. I wanted to clarify a piece here and Rodney and Bruce, you guys can share where the um, difference lies. But if you look at a typically or more traditionally designed policy, according to what Nelson Nash talked about and the policies that we typically are working with we're looking at more of a 30 70 or maybe more of a 40 60 split usually and again there's going to be reasons to vary from that but usually there can be a term rider that then falls off at a certain um, time point in the policy and that term rider is a set cost for that term length of time maybe it's a five year or a ten year a 30 year term rider and it has a set uh, a set cost that goes over those that span of years. But when we look at a policy design that is more of a 1090 or as minimal base as possible, the reason people are looking for that is they want to put as much PUAs in so that they have as much early cash value in year one so that they can use it as quickly as possible. The challenge is what they're often not telling you if you're looking at a comparison between the two illustrations is that a 1090 is usually going to have that blended PUA rider which has an annually increasing term insurance cost, which would then expect that if you have a high dividend, it would cover that increased cost of the the annually renewable term of the blended PUA rider. But if it's not, that's where the extra premium is due. Is, is that correct in what I'm sharing yes. there?
2: Yes. And you're generally, not, and you know, I don't want to scare your listeners. You're generally not going to see that extra premium in the first five, 10, 15 years unless just, dividends really drop. Um, but what you're going to see is, you know, if, you know, and I'm going to continue back to my analogy about the base camp and so on and so forth. So if you've got that base camp and you're, you're building this nice thing, what you can, what you can do is you can have some type of thing called a crossover. So with those uh, term writers or PUA writers, things like that, you can create a crossover in 15 years or 20 years where it all becomes base. If that's what you want to do. Now you're paying a little bit more for it, and that helps prevent that what I call dividend call later on in life. Most of the dividend calls we see are generally in their late seventies, eighties, nineties, but it's from these types of different designs because they weren't explained how dividends work. So it's the long it's the older policies that we see this because now, now you have this. Very rarely do you see it in the first you know two to ten years, unless again you have a very significant drop in dividends. So I have seen it on a couple policies this year, because policies that were sold five years ago were sold with a 7% dividend. They're now at 6.2. So that does affect it a little bit. Um, you know, not much, but it, you know, they're getting the $200 dividend call. So it's not a big deal to them. But just think about that. Each year, if dividends keep going down What that downward pressure is going to do and how that dividend call is going to continue to go up to maintain that death benefit. So Rodney, so I want to yeah. come
1: back to that in just that, a second. That
2: was really good. We yeah.
1: have actually a comment on YouTube. I was not watching, um, so I, I see the comment now. So the comment is the problem is with a 30 to 40% base, you're putting a lot of money into it and you get that higher cash value. Oh, you're putting a lot of money into it to get the higher cash value and death benefit. In my experience, 1090 is the best design to maximize cash growth on your money. So um, I would love for you to comment on that specific idea because I think that's the sentiment that we see coming up in conversations with clients and it's, the conversation yeah. on YouTube, the conversation on Facebook and in our blog. Uh, we see that in conversations with clients over and over again, this idea that 1090 is the only best policy design because it maximizes early cash value and you get the most for your money. So can we this can you is, speak to well, that? Well, I think
0: this is a great time to bring in, Rodney, the, the, the function of illustrations. Mm-hmm. So illustri- when you illustrate something, whether it's 3070 or 4060, I don't care what illustration it is. Um, uh, you, you have to realize that those illustrations are based upon today's interest rates and they're going to go unchecked for the life of the contract or whatever you illustrate it. And what I've heard from on videos from this and, and also f- from um, videos of a, of a 3070 or a 4060 is they do not explain that if dividend rates go down or frankly, if they go up, I mean, either way, they go down, you, you, it's not gonna perform as well and you could have potentially have the problem with the MEC and if, you, if they go down, the other thing is when you build a base policy of only 10%, most of the dividend performance is on the base. You do get some on the PUA also, mm-hmm. but most of it is on the base. So if dividend rates go down and you've only built the base at 10% rather than at 40%, then you're going to, it's going to be affected. If dividend rates go up though, which mm-hmm. we're talking about a 30, 40, 50 year period, but even in the 30 year period, you can see the fluctuations. If dividend rates go up, then the comparison of the 1090 to the 40, 60 or 30, 70, the 1090, the original illustration is going to underperform and the thirty-four, thirty-seventy, or the 40 is going to overperform the illustrated rates. So to so, only say compared what you're seeing on an illustration without seeing the implication of what we've always known about dividends going up and down over over the history of every mutual company is, is just short-sighted. That's that's what I have the comment on that.
2: Absolutely, Rachel. If you don't mind me answering uh, your. Your commenters um, comment or question yeah. real quick, and then you um, yeah, I would agree that if you want to have early cash value in year one, year two, year three, the ten ninety is probably your best thing. However, if that's your goal, this isn't the policy for you um, the, you know that's where if you really want to have money in year one, year two, year three I, I'm sorry, Bruce, I know I might be uh, counteracting you here, but that's where I think you should have that in a savings account. The whole point of whole life policy is to provide, first of all, a death benefit. It's to provide coverage, you know, in case something were to happen. The second part is it does provide a cash value accumulation, and you know, I am all for designing policies, and this is why I don't mind the forty sixty um, because of the fact that, or you know, thirty seventy. I, I'm more comfortable at forty sixty just because. I plan on being here for another 40 years. I don't want to have something that pops up. So uh, I like to take a little bit more of a conservative approach to it. But at the same time, I, you know, I understand the 30-70 approach. But that's if you're looking at a five- to a seven-year, eight-year horizon of maybe start utilizing the IBC concept or other different things like that. To me, everything has, it has its place. And so I really look at whole life policies as being a mid- to long-term play, not a short-term play. So if you really are looking at something for short-term, why go through the cost of an underwriting? Why go through all these different things just to have that? Yes, it makes the money potentially income tax-free, but you know, when you pull it out, but at the same time, you're paying a lot of added cost for something that you can get that's you know, already there. Um, if you're looking at more of a longer-term structure or a mid- to long-term play, that's where I think these policies come in play, and so that's just my opinion and my view. Everyone's going to have different views, but you know that's why I'm for, I'm more for the forty sixty because that's going to bring in that um, that cash value that you're going to need in five, seven, eight, ten years, and that's that's how I look at it. So,
1: you know, I think I love your perspective, and I love that you're sharing the pros and cons of both. Again, that's our our goal and our objective not to ever say there's one right way and only th- this is the only way. However, the people that we are typically working with not only are saying I really want to maximize that early cash value because I want to use this money. We also have this desire and this almost this propelling to create the most with our money. We want to maximize the use of every dollar and what that means is that I want to be thinking long range because I want my money to do the most for me, not only today, but also in the future. I want it to do the most for myself, my, my income in the future possibly have cash for supporting parents or grandparents, having cash available to send my kids to college or pay for a wedding, really being able to be in a position where you are maximizing the death benefit as a legacy planning tool, but you're also thinking about how can you use the cash value today and in the future. And if you really want to do everything well and not just look short term, then we really need to consider what the implications of dividends going up in the future could potentially do if you have less base and you're not getting the growth that you could have had if you had a little bit more base on your policy. We also need to look at if dividends went down and the cost of the annually renewable term went up in the future and we didn't want to make that policy and we're in now a position where we're having to face either we pay this higher cost or we make the policy. What we don't want to do is we don't want to be so short-term focused for what I can get right now today that we miss the future problems we could be creating and we shrink our possibilities in the future. That's not a good position. I think anyone really wants to be in.
2: Correct. And, And to Bruce's point that he brought up, an illustration is a moment in time. It is a snapshot of, you know, how things look. And the best illustration I can give for you on that is November is when all mutual companies generally announce their dividends and that's when they change their, the dividend rate inside their illustration. So run a, run an illustration on October 31st and then wait for that particular company, you know, at the end of November and run another illustration, same product, same design, same everything. Guarantee you it's going to be completely different unless, unless they maintain the same dividend. And right now they're not going to be maintaining the same dividend. So it's going an illustration and this is what a, a term that I always talk about illustration is all about the beauty contest it's all about the pageant and the pageantry around it and every company you know rightfully or wrongfully they all have a certain set of rules they have to play by but within those rules they find loopholes they find different things that they can adjust and, and play with to make their what what they're trying to accomplish to make their illustration look better than others so I look at three things when it comes to an insurance company. Number one, will they be around? Okay, that's, that, that, that's the first thing I want to look at because I want to make sure that my cash value is there, my death benefit's there, and not have to worry about it. Number two, what is their dividend history? Okay, what, what, is, what is the history that they have out there? And then number three, ease of doing business. Um, and for me, ease of doing business, and Rachel, you mentioned in, in the opening when you are introducing me, I strive for 18 business days to get things and running, which means I do a lot of work with my advisors prior to actually submitting a case. And Bruce knows us. We just went through a, a policy. I do a lot of work ahead of time to make sure that when we submit it in, we don't have to worry about surprises and things like that. Um, but some companies, they don't tell you all the guidelines up front. Some companies kind of, oh, well, I only want this and I don't, you know, they only want this type of person and so on and so forth. So that's where I come in and help people like Bruce's. I actually help guide them to the companies that are going to be better ease of business. But those are the three things that I'm looking for. Ease of business also though, goes back to expense costs and mortality costs. I don't want it so that it's so easy that it's going to affect dividend rate down the road because they're letting too many people through. Um, So there's finding that balance. So again, an illustration is a snapshot in time. It's really, you know, I can design it to make it look, perfect. But in a year, it's going to be completely different. And Mm -hmm. so those are the things where, you know, and and this is what I have really stressed to people for 20 years, 20 plus years in in the business is just because you showed them an illustration at time of sale does not mean that you're not meeting with them every year Yes, on the contract anniversary or shortly after the contract anniversary, especially with whole life. And you are showing them what's called what I call an IFL or enforced ledger Amen. or a yes. reprojection, <laughs> something like that, because things change. And you want to, you know, and clients think this is a set it. You know, I, I, sp- I spent a lot of sleepless nights, and so I, I really like um, infomercials. So those of you that may, may know this, this is a Ronco Peel kind of thing. But a lot of clients think this is a set it and forget it thing. It's not. This is- absolutely. I set it and check it over and over and over again. So
1: yes. And again, not check it because something might go wrong, but because absolutely things change. And we're talking about the non-guaranteed side of the life insurance illustration because the guaranteed side that is bare bones, guaranteed going to happen that's at least in year change. one. But as soon as you have a dividend added, even the guaranteed side is going to shift upwards to accommodate that dividend that was added the previous year. And now right. every all of your numbers in the ledger going forward are going to be modified. And I love what you said about illustrations being uh, pageantry or a beauty contest. And really, when you look at that's the surface, you cannot say this is how the policy will perform. I heard it said really well um, recently it was... um I'm forgetting the name of the guy who I heard talking about this, but specifically that an illustration is just an illustration and it's the policy will never perform exactly according to the illustration. So really you want to understand these factors behind the policy. Now I have to say we're at 1130 here on the Eastern coast and I had no idea we were over the top of the hour um, quite by a long shot. So I do want to let you know we have a couple of additional comments. I will share them. I would love to be able to address them. If we have about five more minutes to try to bring this to a close, I know we have a lot more we could discuss. So we have a comment here. Problem is with a thirty forty base, you are putting a lot of money into it to get higher cash value and death benefit. Oh wait, I'm sorry. That was, we already answered that one. Um, Blended term burns off with each PUA. I don't think there's as much risk as there is made out to be. It's riskier due to the nature of annual renewable but not much over just a handful of years. Do you want to comment on that?
2: Yeah. And I I think that um, that listener or the commenter um, said exactly what I said. I said that, you know, in the first few years, you're probably not going to have a big issue. It's, 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 the issue is down the road. If, uh, if dividends change drastically over a period of time, Um, like I said, you know, generally, you're not going to see it uh, if dividends stay the same or go up, but um, you know, we are seeing it from some policies that um, five years ago were sold at seven, 7.2. And now you're, you're at six, 6.2. And so you are seeing some dividend calls, but it's not, like I said, in the first probably 10, 15 years, your commenter is correct. It's probably not as big of a deal, but it's the ones that uh, maybe had some consistent dividends paying for a period of time or had some drops or whatever. And again, you're generally seeing an older policies, not the newer ones, but it's still a concern. And so I'm not saying that it's the concern. I'm saying it's a concern and it's just something you have to be aware of. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm a big believer of creating crossover targets so that you don't have to worry about it in your 80s, that you have a 10, 20, 30 year crossover target to where it becomes full base by that period of time.
0: Yeah, I mean this is a, what this is an example I think it's yeah if you want to assume the risk assume the risk. I mean that's uh, I just don't think uh, they talk about the risk when they talk about the 1090. And Rodney, you and I No because
1: talked. the illustration looks pretty. That's right. that's the reason that and the
0: risk isn't considered. That's exactly where I'm going Rachel because Roddy and I have talked about in the illustrations whether it's with company X or company B when you use a blended PUA in the illustration it actually says these are not guaranteed. And you may have to put additional money in, but that's never talked about in a video. It's never talked about, and if it's not talked about in a video, I, I presume it's not talked about when people go, and not because they're trying to be underhanded. I Unfortunately, in our industry, I don't think people understand the products well enough.
2: Mm-hmm. And that's
0: what we're attempting to do. And Rodney, I know you attempt to do that with your own agents, is to make sure not only do they understand it, but every time be explaining all the... Intricacies of it, and let me just make, and I'll let Rodney comment on that. Uh, let me make one one. Uh, I did a little math today, and so if you if you get a six percent uh, over a thirty year period of of two hundred thousand compounded, you're going to you're going to get about a um, two hundred thirty one thousand six hundred seventy six dollars of of interest that you're going to actually build. If you only get five percent, you only get one hundred eighty-six thousand five hundred eleven. So a lot of people think that that one percent doesn't make that big a difference. And over that thirty-year period, it made fifty-five thousand dollars worth of difference. And that's not even talking about the compounding effect of the uh, the, the dividends being uh, less on that particular uh, contract. So this is significant. And then with our Federal Reserve. Uh, actually manipulating our monetary policy, I frankly think that they're going to continue to put downward pressure on interest rates. Now, if you don't believe that, then the only other way they can go is up. Well, then if they, if they can go, if they go up, then you're actually thwarting the growth if you have a smaller base uh, death benefit. So uh, either way um, you, you, you have to at least be aware of the risk and look in the contract. Yep.
1: Yes. So, Oh, go ahead. I have one more comment I want to bring up as well.
2: Yeah, no, so I'm I, just real quick. I was just going to say that, you know, the biggest thing that um, I, I do believe that insurance agents and that advisors really are trying to do the right thing for their clients. I just think, I just think that they're just not educated enough on all the different products that are out there. And then they get stuck on one product. Um, and the way our distribution models work is you don't have enough people and I'm not trying to uh, to my own horn, but you don't have enough people like me who really take the time to work with brokers and advisors and really coach them and walk them through. And Bruce will tell you, every time we talk, we probably spend the first 20 minutes of going over the same product over and over again, even though he sold it before. It's because I want to make sure he understands the intricacies, the different things that are out there, because we're trying to really what's do is right for the client. So go ahead.
1: I really like that. And I think big picture it can be challenging to keep up with all of the various products and all of the levers and the all of the, um, the little levers that can be adjusted within each individual product. And especially if you're working with long-term care and disability and life insurance and you're working with annuities and all of the other financial products that are out there in terms of investments and alternative investments. And so when we are um, discussing these things, it's really important, again, to understand If we just want to bring all of this back to one point, that we want to do what's best for the client and make sure that you, as a person who's trying to figure out how to implement privatized banking and how to have safety and guarantees and certainty in your financial life, we want to make sure that you're not in a position where you're looking almost like a shiny object syndrome, which can be really easy to do. You're Googling, you're researching on YouTube and Facebook, and you're looking at all of the options available to you and there's a great sales pitch over here and there's a great marketing strategy over here and a lot of times that can be this thing that just looks super attractive and all of a sudden there's either this pull towards doing something differently or wondering is what I'm doing really the best thing for me or not and it can be really easy to get off track and lose sight of the main thing that is having control and certainty and guarantees and being able to maximize the use of every dollar Now, again, we had several comments here. Um, I'm going to at least get to this one. Early cash value is often for availability to make other investments. This would be for privatized banking. To suggest a savings account is better than flowing it through an infinite banking policy is on the verge of crazy. So (laughs) I wanted to at least um, recognize that comment. And um, it's probably coming from this idea, well, at least you could have a 1090 policy and be able to have cash value growth and have a death benefit would be better than a savings account. But can you comment to that particular, um, topic?
2: Comment yeah. To- I just, you know, and again, it's, um, it's my opinion. It's how I've looked at it. Um, and I, I fully understand where the person's coming from. I just think that there is less costly ways to do something If you want to grab money in the first three to four years, uh, you know, and again, it goes back to, um, how I got into this industry and, you know, know thy client, uh, know your time horizons, look at risk assessments and do all the different things that a comprehensive advisor is going to do. And uh, personally, and again, this is how I was trained. This is my, my thought process. This is my viewpoint. Um, I'm not arguing 1090 is a bad thing. I'm not arguing that 6040 or 4060 is better than 1090. I'm not. I'm just saying from my perspective, if you really want that money in the next three years or four years, there are less expensive ways on your money to go about it than doing a food an insurance policy. Trust me. I would love to do the insurance policy. I think it's a great thing. Don't get me wrong. I just think that for the client, and again, this is how I always have to go go with it, I think the client, unless you can really illustrate to me that, that you know something's down you know that they really need this is the better way to go, I think it's better to have a small term policy or a term policy to cover the death benefit, save the rest of that money in a savings account, and you know if that's really what they need the money for, but if it's more of a longer term or midterm thing, it makes more sense you know like uh, I'll give you a mm-hmm. quick real quick example. I do a lot of work with construction companies and construction companies have to have uh, collateral assignments for um, for bonds uh, for some of their projects. So what we've done is we actually do siphon off some of their prof- profits from our uh, projects. We do a 40, 60 split, put it in there, really build it up. And then now they don't have to have collateral that is just sitting in a bank account. Now they've got something that's earning money, doing stuff, but now they can pledge it toward, towards bonds and they've got death benefit. They've got things like that. So there's a lot of unique situations you can do things with. Um, and in fact, I've done as low well as 2080 for it just so they can get cash value faster. I'm just saying for the mo- most clients, general, 1090, you could do something better with your money and have it be less expensive if you really want it in the next one to two, three years. So,
1: Which this is it. extremely valuable in terms of, figuring out what is important to you as a client. It's really not just about saying one size fits all, but at the same time, if you want to have a policy that's not going to perform in the long-term or that we don't feel good about the long-term performance and we don't stand behind the quality of that product in terms of the design, I should, I should rephrase. If we don't stand behind the um, substance and the guarantees in that design, we don't feel good and integrous and ingenuous putting that policy in force for you. If you want that policy design, you can find that from anyone else who's willing to sell that to you. Um, So one last comment I do wanna bring up, there was several others, but um, Bruce, this was to your example. Bruce, yes, 1% is a good size difference, over 30 years, yes, but with that extra cash value, the investment being used, real estate, whatever, makes way over that.
0: Yeah, I mean, potentially, yes. I mean, I have real estate, but but also i just want you to know that you potentially are going to give that up and actually also if you make the policy it's going to be a lot more than that 1% over that time period because you have to pay taxes on it i mean yeah there's all good there's good points in every direction as long as you know the points and the risk of the points that's all that's all we're trying to say here
1: mm-hmm, so, absolutely all and again good points. lots of comments here um thank you To everyone who has been engaged um, today in this conversation. It sounds like we need to continue this dialogue um, and we'll probably bring some of these up in the future. I want to kind of bring this to a close. So all of what we're doing today is discussing policy design for whole life insurance policies, really what the implications and risks are of trying to um, tighten down or strip down a policy to a 1090 design and really looking at how can we make sure that a client is set up for the best long-term and as you said um as you said rodney the whole idea of having midterm or long-term perspective so thank you so much for being here rodney i really appreciate you sharing your perspective and just knowing your history and where you've come from and that foundation that you're standing on to be able to um, share from your experience is tremendously valuable to us and to our listeners. I think just a ton of clarity and even just hearing things differently because you are explaining things differently than maybe they would hear from us on a regular basis.
2: If I could say one thing before you wrap up, I just, I want to highlight this. Everything we're talking about here is great. It's because you have extra, extra dollars, extra cash flow, all those different things. However, if you're not protecting your most important asset, which is your ability to earn an income. And I'm sorry, Bruce, I've got to do a little plug here. But if you're not protecting uh, your most important asset, which is the ability to earn income, all these plans can go can go awry. And so that is where income protection or disability insurance is important. And that's where pretty much in every whole life policy I do under the age of uh, 60, I add waiver or premium. Uh, because if something ca- doesn't doesn't work out like life happens i want to make sure that that policy continues to pay but you should also have some type of income protection and this might be a subject for another podcast down the road but what you have at work may not necessarily be enough to cover it so you really want to talk with your advisor you want to talk with uh, different people about that to make sure that you're not just looking at gathering assets but you're also protecting the ability to keep continue to gather assets so thanks for letting me actually say that real quick that, oh, was gonna be my,
0: that was going to be my tease at the end anyway. So the next podcast will be about this ability.
1: That's excellent. Yes. Thank you very much, Rodney. And that's a very strong opinion that I carry as well. Just because I, maybe even being younger, I have had a close brush with death myself and my perspective on my ability as a fully functioning human at this time could change at any point. And I want to make sure that I and my family are protected as much as possible. And so that comes back again to maximizing the use of every dollar. So thank you so much for everyone who's joined in the conversation for your comments, your questions. um, And I just really appreciate your, um, your feedback and input today. If you have additional questions about policy design, or if you have heard something today that you said, oh my goodness, I really need to explore how privatized banking, infinite banking, whole life insurance could work for me in my own life. And disability insurance. And I'm really interested in continuing this conversation. We invite you to come talk to us at hello. I'm sorry, you can email hello at the but that's not actually what I was going to say. You can go to the slash calendar. You can book a free strategy session on our advisors' calendar. And we will talk to you about exactly how to figure out what your goals are and help you accomplish those most effectively. So thank you again so much, Rodney Mogan. I am pronouncing your last name correctly, right? Yes, you are. Okay, excellent. Rodney, Mogan, thank you so much for being with us today. This was a fascinating, fabulous conversation. And in closing, remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside.
0: Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com.